the Gen X Voice podcast. I'm your host, Trish the Dish, and I'm so excited to introduce my next guest to you all um, in this episode. Chris is one of the most beautiful, enigmatic, graceful, creative, um, coolest human beings I have ever had the pleasure of crossing paths with in this life. Um, We're going to unpack all kinds of things that have made Chris who he is from being the only um, black family in central in the central Illinois town he grew up in to being taken aback by a choreography piece that he saw and realized that's what he wanted to do with his life to traveling the world as a dancer. He is just I just love listening to him tell stories. And if you love everything that you hear, please make sure you check out the show notes where you're going to find links to um, everything about Chris, a.k.a. Ray Gun. And also just wanted to shout out to um, or sorry, just wanted to <laughs> remind you guys that season one is going to be coming to an end in the end of May. Um, because I will be going on a pod tour in which I will be guesting on other podcasts to share a little bit more about who I am and promote the podcast. And I'm trying to pick podcasts that have resonated with me um, that I think that you'll enjoy and also friends that I've made in the podcasting community. I'm super excited um, with the lineup that I've got so far for the summer. That's going to be during June and July. So make sure that you're following Gen X Voice on Instagram and you're following and liking the Gen X Voice page and group because I'm going to be posting once season one's done. I'm going to be posting about whose show I'm on um, with links to their podcast in hopes that you find some new podcasts that maybe you'll be really interested in. Um, Also, if you want to be a guest on season two of the Gen X Voice podcast, please email me at genxvoice.com. I always love when people hear an episode and they're like, oh, I want to be on that podcast. Um, And so I definitely want you to reach out to me so we can sign you up for season two. Um, If you are a part of a generation that you feel just hasn't had the right spotlight or is being misunderstood, and you also want to destroy ageism like I do, make sure you reach out to me. All right, guys, I am so excited for you to listen to my conversation with Chris. Enjoy the show. What generation do you identify and what year were you born? Um, I was born in 1977, and I uh, I identify with Gen X. Awesome. And what are your identifiers? Um, uh, oh, he, him. And so. black, African-American. Oh, oh yeah. No, bisexual, black. gay. What's oh. what some other identifiers you might I'm have? Big black homo. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you grew up in a tiny little town. I did. I grew up in a tiny little town in like in the center of um, Illinois called Lincoln. And it was super small and it was, you know, it was like an all white existence and I was not that. And it wasn't until I was in like, I think junior high was the first time that there was like another, like another dot in the school. So there were two of us. We were we were just like the the two dots on the Shirley Temple movie, oh. you know the famous one where she's tap dancing with the two black guys. Yeah, you look in the credits, they're called dot one and dot two. <laughs> oh, that's where that term comes from. I was just thinking of like a black dot. Oh, you know, like that it would be like that. So, can you can you kind of walk through what was the when was the first time you realized that you were a different skin color than the people around you because what I what I always hear is that you know being racially aware really doesn't come along until maybe you're like seven or eight yeah um but I hear that from white people right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean it was pretty it, I would say uh, I would say it was around seven or eight and it wasn't until um I had a 
because the neighborhood that I grew up in, there it was all like they were all boys, and you know, and like we were the generation of like you know, you go out and like you don't come back until like the streetlights are on. So, um, yep. and uh, one of like one of my friends when we would go to his place, his mom would let everyone come inside except for me. So that was that was when that was like one of the first times that it was kind of like you know in my, like. And something where it was like I had to like immediately kind of deal with it. So that was like the the first time. And then as I got older, you know, it was like different things and like, you know, like hearing like people, it wasn't uncommon for, you know, to be walking across the street and then like a bunch of people like yell things out of the car. So, so like a lot of, I became desensitized to a lot um, of, of like a lot of stuff at a really early age because it was like, um, and like my mom was very, she was very adamant about us kind of rising above it because to, because what she, what my mom would say is, is they want you to feed into it because they want you to be the animal that they, they think that you are. So when you react to those things, that's what they want you to do. And, you know, and turn it, and it's stronger it takes more strength to turn the other cheek than it is to like, you know, knock someone the fuck out. So was your, was your mom, what, what year was your mom born in? That's a great question. My mom has kept her birthday a secret and, oh, and here's the show. And then here's the thing. So my mom grew up in like the deep South and she actually has two official birth certificates. She has two. So my mom technically has two birthdays. <laughs> Wow. I guess why I was asking that, Chris, is because I'm wondering, um, you know, that sounds that sounds very old school. Right. So so either silent generation, which are the parents of the boomers or boomer. And I feel like I remember your I, I went to your house one time in Lincoln. I don't know if you remember. Mm-hmm. I want to say Aaron was with us, too. I don't know what kind of adventure we were on. But we went to Lincoln and we went to your parents' house and it was like, oh, it's just so, it was so wonderful. It was that, you know, just the the dark wood, like everything, everything you would imagine a Midwestern house to be, but like in a smaller community. So nothing is like these sort of prefabbed homes that's filled right. with where we met each other in Springfield, Illinois. Um, so much more like Chicago, like this, this house that you're living in. So this sort of like earthy, warm, dark wood, wood everywhere. I remember, you know, I feel like I remember there being like, um, Oh, her knickknacks. Yes. 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 Okay. So that is a real memory. Like the shelving, the dark shelving unit with all the knickknacks, the it's grown. So like first it spread around the house and now it's going up the ceilings. And it's like, she, she genuinely, I believe my mom has a problem. (laughs) Like she's a little hoarder ish. Yes. Mm-hmm. So she, so she's from the deep south. How did she end up in a place where her family was one of the only dots? To use your term, um, or the only dot. It sounds like until you yeah, for a them. while. Um, so my older brothers were start um because um because she lived they lived in Chicago, and my older brothers were starting to get to the age to where they like they were kind of, you know, getting the attention of like, you know, the, the gangs and what have you. And my mom was like, I refuse to, um, bury any of my sons before me. And so she's like, if I have to take them out of this, I will. And so the church that she went to was connected to a church in Lincoln. So it was kind of a, you know, so like there was like a community, it was kind of like a community thing. So that's how it was, you know, Kind of easy to do because another fun fact about Lincoln, Illinois, um, the when uh, the University of Illinois, like the contract was, um, you know, up and they were originally going to put it in Lincoln because it's in the center of the state and Lincoln refused it because that was when they were integrating colleges. Yeah. And instead, they took the state mental institution. <laughs> Wow. No wonder yeah. there's kind of like a dark, I mean, I know that we pulled into town at dusk, 
Well, that and there are two prisons there too. Wow. Uh, and a Christian college. Okay. So That's what was that like growing up there? Um, just exactly how you think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, I mean, you know, like the, for the most part, it, except for like kind of dust ups here and there, um, it wasn't until, it didn't become like a constant until I got to like dating age. And then, um, you know, there, it was always the, and like, I mean, this is back when like girls were a thing. Gross. Um, and, you know, there was always the, oh, I can't date you because my, my dad doesn't want me to date a black guy. That was super common. And so, yeah, like that happened. So that was when it became, it really became more of a thing and like really kind of noticing it. And then when, like, when, like, like when I got into high school, like there were, you know, more blacks that were coming into the city and then like meeting them. And then that was also like some of the first times that like I had witnessed, um, you know, like, like blacks that were like, I don't, you know, don't identify or, you know, like wish that they were white or, you know, different things like that. Cause it was like, I always knew that I was different, but like never at any point in time that I think, oh, I want to, I want to look like that, you know? I feel like that was always, that was a, that, that's a conversation that like young black, you know, like young black teenagers have with each other or like call or call out, you know, when they see it in each other, right. like a lot of times, like that's where you like see those things. And, and I can tell you, like, there's not like nothing more kind of, I guess, demoralizing sometimes when like your, your blackness is contested by somebody that's white and based on like stereotypes or, or, or the, or the way that they see or the way that they believe you should be. So my existence to you is based on a series of stereotypes that are usually like pop culture characters that they see that they, that they think are cool. And a lot of times, even in the context of those situations, those people like they're not they're a lot of times kind of they're not they're not the good guy you know what i mean no they're they're totally and completely um i mean at least in the time that we were growing up um they were offensive let's let's just be straight up okay so you you know they ha would talk with a certain you know street accent um, you know, and, and have, you know, talk jive or, you know, um, dress a certain way or have these characteristics, um, that, that were like, oh, that's how black people are. And if you're not like that, if you're more like Carlton, mm -hmm. Fresh Prince, then you're, you know, you're totally. Yeah. Somehow that makes your existence, your existence and your identity less than because, you're not fulfilling the the checklist that they have in their head of how you should be. I can't even imagine being black in an all white community, understanding these sort of social parameters and, and things, and then realizing that you're not into women. Mm -hmm. So now you're gay. I, I basically just had a sign that said, beat me up, please. Let's fight. Okay. Yeah, you know, um, so I was actually, I was outed, um, I was outed my freshman year of high school by the very first person that, like, the very first guy that I'd ever even thought or considered or anything oh, like that. Really? With. Yeah, the very first one. And so high school, like, high school was a mindfuck for me because, like, there was that moment, you know, like, as every, as you get older people, you know, you, you grow apart and the whole thing. I mean, we all watch my so-called life and like, we know how that whole thing. Actually, goes. I never did. What? Yeah, I never did. I didn't have, I didn't have that, that channel. I don't know what you channel. Has ABC. Oh, okay. No, I, I was too busy, like being like all into Depeche mode and, and, you know, fucking my boyfriend. <laughs> I, I don't remember watching TV in high school unless it was MTV. I mean, straight up, I'm a hundred percent telling the truth. Yeah. So, um, well, what was I saying? Oh, so, so like I, all the time I would have 
people that like I literally grew up with that I would be in fights with for no reason. And it, and in fact, when so the um, so the guy who outed me, it was a people were questioning his sexuality, and then he did a I'm not, but so and so is. And then when I was asked about it, my re- my response. It was a genuine one. I was like, oh, I don't know. And then I didn't think anything of it. And that was taken as, oh, well, you know what I mean? Right, um, compliance instead of, you know, going, saying against it. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, so high school <laughs> was, high school was rough. And um, when, so my, I think it was my senior, junior, senior year, the, the last girl, like the last girl that I ever dated. So it was one of those situations where she was clearly rebelling against her parents, you know? And so, and I was like, you know, I was the perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, um, and for me, it was like, great. Cause if I have a girlfriend then people will just leave me the fuck alone. And then, right. you know what I mean? Um, so it worked for both of us. She well, was weird. Yeah, she was totally my beard. And so prom, um, so she lived in like the neighboring town. So for their, was it prom or homecoming? No, it was homecoming because it was like, it was fall. That's when prom is, right? Or no, homecoming. Homecoming is fall. Yeah. Prom is like summerish. It's like a- Spring. Yeah, it's like towards yeah, the end of the year. That sort of thing. I don't know. Um, so um, they had told all of their parents that they were staying somewhere else. And came to Lincoln and like got hotel rooms at like this sleazy motel where it's like all the door like you know it's like it's not inside it's like all the doors and like oh yeah I know about the hotel motels so and it was like the two like the two rooms at the very end and like the doors are wide open and there's like liquor everywhere and it's all teenagers right oh but let me back up so they do that they um they get. So of course, with a lie like that, it just takes one 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 phone call and the whole thing falls apart. Oh yeah. So all of their parents caravaned into Lincoln, and the only one, and because clearly the person who orchestrated this whole entire thing was the black guy. So they came to my house. They came to my, so they come to my house, and it's like so it, the girl I was dating it was like her parents and. You know, so all of them, and they're like freaking out. And so I was home, and my mom, like, and my mom comes in my room, and she's like, "So there are some people here that want to talk to you." And so I go out there, and they're like, "Where's our daughters?" Like, I mean, it was like a lynch mob, and they were like freaking out. And I was like, "I don't know." And so my mom, kind of seeing where it was going, she like stopped and she told me to go inside, and she's like, "Here's the thing." My son doesn't know where they are. You're on my property and I own a gun. And so that so that kind of ended that. So so I go back into my room and, you know, because my mom's like, I don't even want to know. So I go back into my room and then sure shit, like her, their parents couldn't have even gotten into their cars. And I'm getting a tap at my window and it's my girlfriend and she's like, oh, yeah, we got a hotel room. Come sneak out with us. <laughs> So, being, you know, a responsible teenage boy, I climb out of the window and I go with them to the hotel. <laughs> oh, my God. So, we get to the hotel and, you know, everybody's like doing their thing and blah, blah, blah. And it starts to get to, you know, it's like, oh, everybody's, you know, like pairing up and going to, to their rooms. And um, she and I hadn't, you know, like sealed the deal yet. And so, like, this was supposed to be the time. And so we had a room and so we go into the room and like we're like laying on the bed and so she she takes off all of my clothes and then she reaches into the like side little like side cap like side drawer and pulls out this vat of like whipped cream and starts rubbing it all over me and she's like trying to be sexy and I'm just really uncomfortable and I'm standing there naked with covered in whipped cream and then there's a bang at the door and the door flies open and it's her dad and her brother and she runs into the bathroom and closes the door and they come at me and the only thing that stopped them from getting a hold of me is the fact that I was covered in whipped cream. So I got away and I ended up running naked through Lincoln three miles back to my house 
and snuck into my room. <laughs> wow. So that happened. I mean, talk about needing a minute to process. Yep. <laughs> and that's when you were like, okay, well, um, I'm pretty good with not dating women anymore. Right. I was like, see, this clearly <laughs> the reason why that's not a thing anymore. Yeah. So oh my God, that must have been so terrifying. Oh my God. So so how did you leave Lincoln? And and I mean, because you had a pretty exciting life by the time I met you. You'd already lived in a lot of neat places. And the reason we connected in Podunk, Springfield, Illinois, was that we were both like, oh, you come from the city. <laughs> we can we can be sane together. Well, it was I think it was. Um, so I know I keep bring, like bringing my mom back up, but like she always said that she knew as soon she's like, I knew as soon as you turned 18 that, you know, because. Yep. And. Because I was always like the independent one, and um, like I about there's a big age gap between me and like the rest of my brothers and sisters. So and um, so like I was always like I was more of almost like an only child than um, you know. And I actually my oldest brother, I grew up with his oldest two kids, and my oldest niece is a year younger than me, and she was like my sister. Um, um. Yeah, so um, so I turned eighteen, and like my mom was like, she's like, you, know, she's like, I already know, you don't have to. She's like, I already know you're gonna, you're you're gonna go. So, um, and so, and I knew I wanted to go to college, and that was kind of also part of it was, you know, she was like, I won't fight you leaving because I know that you're going, like that you're gonna do those things. Like I'm not worried that you're gonna go and just like you know not do anything with yourself. So I went to college, um, and in college, I I took a dance class. Um, as Wait, a, where did you go to college? Um, so so I went to um, Lincoln College first, um, and because it's a, like it's in town, and like you know I could get all sorts of grants and things like this. So it was basically free because like I lived, I was from Lincoln, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I just knew. <laughs> I wanted to get the fuck out of my mom's house. So, um, and Lincoln actually has a, it, it's a junior college, but it had a campus so I could stay on campus. Um, and oh, wow, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. It was one of the, um, the, it was, they called it a suitcase college. So it was, so, and, and Lincoln is, it's the school that, it's the school that people go to that want to go to better colleges, but they need to bring up their GPAs before they can go to these other colleges. <laughs> so, well, I mean, to be fair, that's that's what a lot of community and junior colleges are all about, to be honest. Yeah. That's so, honestly, to be honest, that's why I didn't. And I wish to God someone would have pulled me aside and said, listen, poor kid, you've no business going to a four year with, with your parents not being able to pay, with not yeah. having parents that can pay. Yeah, so um, so I took a so I, I took an elective. Um, it was a dance class because people were like, "Oh, it's a it's an easy A, it's a blow up class. Like you just basically have to show up." And at the end of the semester, um, I saw a a dance performance, and it was David Parsons out of New York. Wow! And, no kidding. Yeah, and. I walked out of the theater and literally said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I changed my majors and like start, started focusing. Like I spent the entire summer, like taking as much dance as I could. Then I started auditioning for, um, like, like bigger schools. <clears throat> and then I got into SUNY purchase and like, I literally, it was like that happened and then I was off in the running and I never looked back. So God, that is so amazing. I, for some reason, I just kind of thought that dance was always a part of you, but it was actually um, just yeah. that is that's so that's so romantic and beautiful because like what what an inspiration to see that and then and then also did you feel up until that moment that like you didn't really have like well like you said you didn't really know what you wanted to do you just knew you wanted to get the fuck out of Lincoln so right. was this just this sort of like. Did you feel it in your in your soul that like this is this is my new identity? I'm a dancer. Was it kind of like that? 
Um, a little bit. It was so, um, I was always an athlete and like, so as a kid, like I did gymnastics and then like when I got to like the, like the peewee leagues, which is like sixth grade and all of that. Yeah. I, I played football and, you know, I did all of the, like all the things all the way through high school. So I was always athletic. And so that part of dance appealed to me, like the athleticism of it. And then um, I was kind of flirting with the idea of going into English education. Um, and so like I, there was a lot of like literature and stuff that I liked. And then going and seeing dance, it was like the first time that I saw that together in the same place at the same time. Uh-huh. And, and it was, and for me, it's all, and it's still this way, like, it was never about me being a dancer. It was always about me being a choreographer. Yeah. Cause I've always wanted to like, for me, it's never, I've never been about, I don't, I've never wanted to star in the, you know, the spectacle. I want to be the person that creates it. Um, because, and this is a little woo woo, but it, I've always seen that as like, there's a level of immortality to that because oh, if you 100%. create, cause if you create, you know, art that it will live, like good art will live beyond you. And it's like, you live past that. So I was like, fuck yeah, I want to be immortal. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. And you, you get to be the mastermind of, you know, creating an environment and with you, because I, that's what you were doing when I met you was choreographing. Mm -hmm. Um, You were creating the costumes. um, So the, the ambiance, the music, the moves, um, you know, every, and, and not to be weird, but you're the puppet master, mm-hmm. right? And so you, you are literally creating your own world through dance and music and, and this art and even the background. So like, what does the lighting look like? And what is, mm-hmm. um, so you were yeah. able to proliferate oh, through all of that. Yeah. And the, the lighting that, the that was one thing that um really struck me with David Parsons because that was the first time that I saw someone using lighting as architecture to like shape you know like where where and like how the dancers were moving like in the space and like you know taking like a huge stage and like pulling it into like this tiny place and making it seem like it's so empty you know or like and I'd never seen anything like that and I've still kind of held on to that idea of using like light as architecture. Well, I've, I've definitely seen that in your, in some of your performances. So I guess that's a, a neat way to segue into, you know, how did you end up? So what school did you say that you went to and what city was that in? Because you kind of said that quickly and I'm, I'm sure our listeners, our audience is not probably very prolific in the, you know, modern dance uh, so world. I went, so I went to SUNY Purchase in upstate New York. They have an amazing dance conservatory and it kicked my ass. And it it gave me the, the killer instincts and all of the skills that I needed, you know. And yeah, it was it was amazing. Um, and, and through there, like I, I also was given some really great opportunities. Um, one summer I got a chance to go to ADF, which is the American Dance Festival. And that was like mind blowing and like earth shattering on so many levels because what they do is, is you're there over the summer and it's like six weeks and all you do is take dance classes and then each week different professional companies come through and then they perform and then they're there for the week and like they do different classes and then you're like they're with these people you know so to be like like some of them you know like that summer i met um like bill t jones who still is like he's like he's an inspiration on so many levels he came out um he was a dancer that came out of the this really i'm gonna call it dark period (laughs) in modern dance and it's kind of like so it was basically a period of time where there was a, a group of dancers that were coming up that were kind of rebelling against what modern dance had become 
because they were like, oh, it's basically the same as ballet, and modern dance was rebelling against what ballet was, and then so they were like, well, what's next? And they one of uh, one of the choreographers in that era came up with this thing called the No Manifesto, which was like, you know, we reject, um, you know, the idea, you know, that you know, it's basically anything can be a stage. Everything is movement, and anything can become a performance. And we're talking about the mid to late nineties at this point. No, this was like earlier than that. This was like in the eighties, like seventies into the eighties. Okay, yeah. So that's when all of that was going on. So okay, out of the No Manifesto, a lot of um, different kind of ideas and concepts started coming out of it. So that's where a lot of the athleticism that's in modern dance now kind of came out of because it started pulling in all these different outside sources that weren't just coming strictly from ballet. So modern dance evolved, but as it, as it was evolving, it got this just ugly wart on its face known as like, so when you think of modern dance, everybody thinks of like, Oh, I'm standing here and I'm talking and I'm being a tree and like, you know, that sort of thing. That's what people think of with modern dance. And it, because it came out of that era, because that's what that time was known for. And in fact, the woman who came up with the No Manifesto, like 10, 15 years later, she was being interviewed and she was asked about it. And she was like, Yeah, I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't think anybody was listening. She completely, like, that manifesto completely changed and, you know, morphed an entire, like, you know, art form. And she's like, yeah, I was just talking shit. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. So um, at ADF, I got to meet all of these people and um, I got the opportunity to work with um, uh, a woman named um, Martha Myers, who she taught a choreo lab that was probably the most influential thing that in my entire like beginning dance career, like the way that I was taught there, I still use those teachings and like use those philosophies today. And the only reason that the only reason that I took the like took her choreo lab was because of a boy. <laughs> wow, isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah. So there was this, this you know, this cute dancer boy and he was all like you know brooding and intellectual and I was like oh yeah I'm totally down with that and so he was like oh are you gonna take Martha Myers um um are you gonna take Martha Myers uh choreo lab and I was like oh yeah totally I had no idea who she was no idea and to take the choreo lab she only had there were only eight slots and um so she she's like you have to come in you have to interview with me and it was like Wow. It felt like like a scene from a movie because it was so it was at Duke University and it was like in one of the old halls and like there's Which this is in Chicago summer. for those of you that don't know oh no Duke University in uh in the Carolinas Duke oh the Duke what I, maybe I was thinking of another university I don't know what you were thinking of. no I don't know uh, guys <laughs> I just don't know I've rooted for Duke in basketball had no idea that they were North Carolina so I'm gonna edit all of that out okay, <laughs> just kidding <laughs> wow. um, yeah so you know so it's like it's summer and it's hot and so you have all of these dancers like that are waiting and like one person would go in to the off, like into this office and then some time would pass and like some people would come out and they'd be laughing and like others would be crying and like all sorts of stuff. Right. So it gets to me and then I go in and there's this tiny little woman and she's sitting behind this giant wooden desk. Oh my God. So it's just out of flash dance. (laughs) Basically. Literally literally out of flash dance. So I sit down and she says to me, she's like, so why should you take my, why should I, why should I allow you to take my class? And you know, when, you know how when you're younger and you don't really think, sometimes you just like your heart reacts before like your brain has time to like reel it in. Oh yeah. And so my response was, well, I'm going to become a choreographer whether I take your class or not. So, (laughs) and then I just got up and awkwardly like left (laughs) because I was like, I don't, I don't know. 
And when the list went up, my name was the very first one. And she, like, she came up to me and she was like, she's like, I'm going to push you. She's like, you've got a fire in your belly. And I like that. And that same weekend, Pina Bausch, her company was there and she and Martha were friends. And so I was out, you know, smoking with the cool kids and Martha and, and Pina were like hiding behind a car smoking. And then when they came out, she introduced me to Pina Bausch and she was like, this is one to watch. Oh my gosh. How did that feel to you? Here's this small town kid who was the only black kid for a while, had, you know, had to deal with being outed by this guy. Now here you are. I'm kind of getting chills just thinking about because you know how much I love you and just... <clears throat> I can't believe we've never, I've never heard this story, by the way. We, we've talked about so many things. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast so I could get this out of you. Um, yeah, of course. But, but what was that moment like to you? Surely that felt out of body to be recognized as Chris, as who you are and see who you could be more maybe so than you could. Seriously, the, the hairs on my, you can't tell, but they're all standing on end. Yeah, it was, I mean, yeah, like you said, it was, it, it's, you know, it's one of those, mo it's truly one of those moments where like, as it's happening, you're like, is this really happening? Like, this can't be happening. You know, like, I'm not inside my body right now. I'm watching this from the streetlight over there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you almost can't even feel. Yeah, you know, it's not inside of you. It. I, I can tell you that it. it's the opposite feeling that I had when um, oh God, what is her name? I can't remember her name now. Twyla Tharp, when her company came and did, they do this piece, she did this piece called The Hundreds, and I'm still pissed about it because it's 35 minutes of my life that I'll never get back. <laughs> Blame her for it. So it's definitely the opposite feeling that I had when I saw Twyla Tharp's company. <laughs> And uh, so those of you that are into modern dance know what's going on, where the rest of us are like, we're going to have to Google that. No, okay. Let's so put a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> so Twilight Tharp was, she was another that was, that kind of came out of. That dark the, modern. Yeah. The, so it was called the, uh, the Judson Church era because Judson Church was like, I don't know if like that was where they were, the, the group or whatever. I mean, it was just a lot of hippies running around with bare feet, like dancing on like, you know, park benches and crazy things like that. Yeah. So, um, and she created, Twilight Tharp created this piece. And when her, when her company was coming to town or coming to ADF, everybody was like, Oh my God, Twilight Tharp is going to bring the hundreds. She's going to do the hundreds. It's, it's historical and blah, blah, blah. And all of this. And she's, she's using, you know, dancers and you get to audition and all of this stuff and everybody's jumping around about it. So it was the second half of the show. The first half of the show was okay. Um, it was four dancers and they looked like when they were on stage, they looked like they were fighting each other. So it was just really painful to watch. <laughs> um, and uh, so then it's like, everybody's ready, you know? And it was like, so she walks out on stage and I'm not making this up. She walks out on stage and then she hits like, you know, the thing for like the, um, like the projector, like the rear view, or like, and she says, it was a time I was, it was the seventies and it was summer and I was pregnant and I was sitting in the daisies and I thought to myself, I'm going to bring dance back to the people. Exact oh, quote. Right. right. So. Then she proceeded to explain how she, you know, found all of the everyday men and, you know, women and, and saw that, like, the gestures that they were doing were just as beautiful as, like, what they were doing in ballet and all of this. And she wanted to feature that. And that's what the hundreds would become. Okay? So that's about 15 minutes that have gone past. And we have still not seen any movement. <laughs> <laughs> this entire time. So then she has one of her dancers come out and do a couple of the phrases. So what she did was she created 100 one-minute phrases based on gestural things, right? So and everybody's like, okay, all right, all this. So we're at about 31 minutes now. 
and there's still no dancing done. And then she talks for a little bit longer, and then she's like, okay, now, now the hundreds. 100 people came onto the stage and all started moving at the same time, and then that was it. It's 35 minutes of my life that I will never get back, and Twilight Dark owes me. Wow. See, even me telling you that story, you're like, this I mean, is I was actually going to say, I really want to go this deep because, I mean, we don't have to give her that much time. But, yeah, that was painful to even listen to. So, so OK, but this was the we are in the mid 90s now. Right. So you're in college in the mid 90s. And, you know, this is a cultural moment that, you know, I talk about a lot on the podcast. You know, the rave scene is is blowing up house music. Uh, drum and bass, oh, yeah. um, electronic music is just, mm. you know, all of this wonderful energy. Everyone's dancing. I mean, that's in, in this underground music scene. And then you have artists like, like York and Tricky and, you know, Massive Attack are starting to, you know, come, come out of this, this sort of um, electronic hip hop world. How did yeah, that affect you? And what was your, wh- how, how did you, Hmm. I don't want to, I'm trying to lead you in without yeah, saying, so, did you um, like it? <laughs> so it was, um, actually, actually back when I was at Lincoln College, my roommate, his, um, he was in broadcasting and the, um, it, it was at a time when, um, like, uh, record companies and what have you were sending CDs of electronic music to colleges to get college kids to, like, so that the radio stations would play it, but none of it fit the um, the format of the um, the radio station um, at the at Lincoln College, and so my roommate and I were like, "Well, there's not technically a library for this type of music, so it's just all sitting here." So we would come like every Friday. When stuff would come in, we'd separate all of the like stuff that fit the format, and then the rest of it was like Tricky and Bjork and Goldie and Ronnie Size and like so I got like I was basically being like fed all of that. Wow. And for free. And for free, yeah. And it was stuff that people were like, you know In you Lincoln, know, like, in Lincoln, Illinois. In Lincoln, Illinois, yeah. So that was where that was where I started to experience that, and that's where I started to get like a taste for that because I knew house music um, because my, like having family in Chicago um, at the time, the um, one of the radio stations every Friday, like Friday night from like midnight to like three, like they would have DJs spin, and I would have my cousins like make tapes for me so yeah so i was getting like so and 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 i mean that just also kind of added to the you know you're not like these people (laughs) kind of a thing growing up because like way i can hear your dog snoring i know he's so (laughs) loud he sounds like an old man (laughs) so listeners if you hear that it's it's his sweet red nose uh boston terrier Mm mm-hmm he sounds like an old man. Yep. And he's really mad at me. So that's probably like hate snores right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The minute he could, he went back in under the blanket. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not having- well, so, yeah. So then like once I started kind of playing around with like choreography and things like that for like um, for the dance class that I had taken, I started I was using that sort of music. So my dance career was has always been attached to electronica like and can we just take a moment to give thanks to the fact that you used electronica which is exactly you don't call it edm us no. old rulers. it was exactly. it always shall be referred to as electronica because that is techno house drum and bass um jungle um you know happy hardcore it it embodies all of it and whoever decided that they wanted to call it electronic dance music, man, if you just say electronica, we already know it's dance music. I'm just saying it's redundant. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, so yeah. And then, um, and then in, um, also in college, when I was really like, when I really started 
choreographing things. And there was, there was always resistance to, you know, as far as like music and things like that, it's like, Oh, you know, using classical or like using like weird abstract tones, you know, cause that's like, that's always been a thing in modern dance where you're just like, right. you going to put your audience to sleep because the raindrops on the side of bark. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Like, I went to those shows in college actually. Cause I had some friends that were like, this is, this is to, to simulate the womb. I have taken and recorded, you know, all of my ultrasounds and then put them together. And that's what I'm dancing to. With, with yogurt and a spoon. <laughs> being slurped by a five-year-old I don't know yeah just so so I was gonna yeah that's I'm so glad you brought that up because I was gonna ask you if there was a little bit of pushback of like whoa what are what is this music you're using that's not that's not yeah Yeah, it was like you know it's like oh it's not it's not really it's not really this it's not really that and then I saw this choreographer at a um it was like a, another like smaller kind of like college level like festival and she did this piece to Ronnie size high potent and I was like I I mean if I could have I would have literally gone to all of my professors and been like fuck you fuck you fuck you you know because seeing that and seeing what she did and like how it was every like it she literally was doing all of all of the like things that I was being taught but doing it to the music that I was being told that yeah you shouldn't use and I was like no so then after that it was like you couldn't tell me anything wow. <laughs> and so I just you know it was like this is the this is what speaks to me this is you know these are the soundscapes of you know the stories that I want to tell so that was um that was what I did and I and that kind of took me all the way through, um, you know, after college, like I ended up, like I ended up moving to, I, I ended up in Chicago and I was in Chicago for a while and I did not like the first go around in Chicago was not great. Um, but I think a lot of it came from, you know, it's like, I just got out of college. I was real cocky and you know, like I was young so, and we all kind of go through that period where it's like, you're really smelling yourself, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so it was kind of rough. And then, um, and you mean rough in terms of trying to get your dancing choreography career? Yeah, well, yeah. Cause like, you know, the, like the goal is, you know, like when you, especially when you like, you kind of major, like the goal is to join a company, you know, and everyone's like, it's like, that's when you know that you're like, okay. I'm in the scene at like, I'm a part of a company because, and that's what everybody wants to do. And I was the Chicago at Chicago at the time that I came in, the, it was, the mentality was very different. And I, you know, I was kind of used to like kind of that New York mentality where it's like, um, you know, Oh, okay. So if, if my leg, if I could get my leg to 90 and you know, your leg is only at 85, well, then you better practice and get your leg up there, you know, whereas in Chicago, it was like, well, can't we meet in the middle and go to 45? So I didn't really have that instinct. My instinct was like, if you can't do it, then move, then move along. And so that, that rubs some people the wrong way. Um, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, and I was never like, I was never one to mince words, um, you know, so, and as I've grown, I've, I've learned to be a little more diplomatic only a little, <laughs> a little more diplomatic about these things. Um, and, um, so I just, I ended up in Springfield and, um, that was when I met you and it was we like, both, we were both had hit rock bottom cause New York had chewed me up and spit me out. Mm-hmm. Um, Chicago had done the same to you mm-hmm. and, and it was just sort of this nice, easy, soft landing pad that nothing was happening, but at the same time, is this like an energy drink you're drinking? No, I'm drinking a Four Loco. I told you. I don't know what that is. So Four Loco is this really terrible malt liquor that when it first came out, it was banned because- the You did Four not Loco- tell me that we were drinking during this. Yes. I thought you asked me and I was like, great, we'll go trashy and- No, you never said any of that. I said- the, the very, let's see, I said, um, 
Is is Mercury in retrograde right now? Because there's something going on with the technology. Well, I'm telling you, there is no nothing in here that says that you did. You said I said, "Hey, here's your hour thing," and you said, "Dalila," and I said, "Will we be having an adult beverage?" And you said, and and you never responded. Everything else is just like, "No, it never sent. I never got your stuff." So that's lame. Whatever. But anyway, let's because. I mean, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. Um, but, ew. but, but, um, so the interesting thing about meeting you in Springfield, Illinois was, um, and, and you joked about how I'm like, I'm in braids and, but I was super city. I had my short black hair <laughs> and, my, and my Chuck Taylors. And yeah. I've kind of gone back to my little, my hippie ways just because it's just so much less energy. Um, like keeping a short, cute haircut is a lot of money. You have to get that shit done every week. I'm not trying to do that, but I think about it all the time, Chris. But anyway, um, maybe someday, but, um, you actually were, well, I want to fast forward a little bit because yeah, so we had this sort of soft landing in, um, in Springfield, Illinois, in the middle of nowhere, you know, just there was nothing going on. We spent a lot of time watching Mad TV and playing, um, you know, some, I don't know, some ghost video game. Oh, oh yeah, uh, witchcraft. It was Is the, it witchcraft? oh no, um, oh. no, you're talking about Fatal Frame. Video game, not RPG. Yeah, yeah, Fatal Frame. Fatal Frame. Oh yeah, that <laughs> made me scream. You could always do it with the lights <laughs> off too. And we had such a great time though, but but um, we we kind of went our separate ways. You went back up to Chicago, and then that was a whole other chapter. But then you discovered burlesque. Yes. And what, I mean, how do you go from Korea? Because, I, you know, just to go back a little bit, you did find some success having a dance studio. Oh, yeah. Chicago. So, yeah. So um, when I... When I went back to Chicago, things were totally, you know, like things were very different. And I actually um, was approached by um, a guy that I went to college with who was starting a company. And he asked me if I would be interested in being the artistic director um, of the company. So that was the first kind of like major time. And it was like, okay, so then I was, so I was like, okay, I'm running this company. And it was, it was a pretty, unique company it was kind of a ragtag kind of group because the company itself had it was um it was like five break dancers two capoeiristas um like some guys that did um stage combat and like two ballerinas and it was like okay so now let's make all of these things gel together so that was so i was with that company for four years and um and the company is still around and it was very successful. Um, and then I left that company and started my own. And when I started my company, I had like a full company and a studio and um, it was amazing. And then the economy tanked. And the first thing that goes, as we know, is the arts. So, um, uh, so then it was like, okay, well, what? So I lost the studio and it was like, well, what do I do next? And there was a guy who I had done some work with who was just getting into burlesque. And then he went and competed at the Burlesque Hall of Fame and he won King and he came back to Chicago and he was like, I want to start an all male group. And he sent out this mass text to like 300 people and three people showed up. And then we became the, um, this all male group that, at the time, there were no all-male burlesque groups going on. And um, it also, men in burlesque, like there were a few sprinkled here and there. And that was it. There weren't any... By the um, way, I did not mean to have my microphone on when I was playing my drink. Just so everyone knows. <laughs> I just realized. I'm so sorry. So anyway, there had never been an all-male burlesque this is this is like male burlesque group and then uncharted also, territory once again you find yourself in uncharted yeah. territory um and so um coming into it uh, uh, from the dancer standpoint it was like okay so let's look at like so we did our research and it was like all right so burlesque is very you know it has it has um you know 
ties in like political commentary and like it's a very you know um female you know it's a it's a very female um dominant um industry so we were like okay you know what let's respect that and as we came into it it's like we're going to we never relied on the novelty of us being men in this art form because so like we got as naked as the women we our costumes were as 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 elaborate um you know and it was like and it was never a oh well I can't do that because, you know, that's a, a girl thing. It was like, okay, so what would be, what would be the equivalent or how, how, how would I take and do this, you know, like classic female trope as a man? Um, and so that was, that was the way that we approached burlesque. And because we approached it that way, we gained a lot of success. We, um, <clears throat> we competed at the burlesque hall of fame as a group and, um, one, one group. And then in 2013, I competed solo and I became the 2013 King of Burlesque. And so and then in this time, like, because one, because there weren't a lot of guys. And then two, because of the way that we kind of came at it, you know, it was like, and, and I'm, I'm being dramatic just slightly, but it was kind of like Beatlemania. It was crazy. Like, we were we were asked to go everywhere, so like we traveled the world, like Australia, New Zealand, um, like Helsinki, like everywhere, and got to like just got to meet all sorts of just weird and crazy like performers and you know mentality like just just from all over the place and like going to excuse me like going to Edinburgh for the um, Edinburgh Fringe Festival was like it was amazing and it was one it was amazing just to see that but then also to see um different types of theater and things like that that are literally in their infant stages that like a year later were like the next big craze like while while we were there there was a group from uh, new zealand who they had this it was like basically kind of like a survive like a like a zombie horror survival um haunted house and we always we never got to see it because it was around like our our call time was at the same time as the show but every time we went past what we would see is like there would be screams and then you'd hear like like the muzzle flash of a gun and then all of these people would come running out of this um building and there would be these two guys in a jeep with guns on them and they're like screaming get on the ground get on the ground and it was like oh my god what is going on in there but then that's when like it, the whole like immersive theater kind of interactive thing started to become like become huge was after going there and seeing that so being at Ed, like being in Edinburgh to be there to see like kind of the the like nuggets of like what is gonna be like hot in a few years like seeing it in its baby phases so that was awesome and then just like the people that we've gotten to meet and like the experiences like um, we had an opportunity to uh, um, headline a show with um, Alan Cummings and um, Liza Minnelli. And so, so yeah, so like, it's just been a, just a constant, um, you know, like over and over and over, we've been able to experience, or we just got a chance to experience all of these things. I'm sorry, I got distracted because my roommate came in and he's- Oh, no, that's okay. Well, and, and this is a good segue into, um, you know, a question that I have, which is, I mean, you you actually found a place that allowed you a lot more artistic freedom and even what you were doing when you are the artistic director for a dance studio in Chicago. And so, you know, just, just to kind of wrap up your life, like that is, I mean, did you ever imagine that that's where you would find your fame was in, in that realm? I mean, that wasn't even on your radar. No, not at all. Like, no. Um, but I've, I've found that, like my superpower is the ability to like 
evolve and kind of become a chameleon, you know? And so very Gen X of you is you see the opportunity and you go for it and you give it your all. And it, and what's what I, what I love about all the Gen Xers that I've ever had on the podcast is especially the ones that are my close friends like you is that we didn't take a very straight line to anything. We (laughs) the wind blew us always having a kind, kind of a plan. Mm -hmm. Like I'll get there, uh, you know, somehow. Um, But I just, I just want to tell you, Chris, how extremely proud of you I am. I know that we have kind of been touch and go at least the last decade, but, you know, just kind of watching your Facebook page and, you know, seeing some of your, you know, your photo sessions and just kind of the, the, the celebrity that you, I'm, I'm so proud of you. I'm, you know, I think about the, the, the two little youngsters that were hanging outside of coffee houses, bitching about how fucking boring and bland Springfield, Illinois was. I mean, and no offense to Springfield, Illinois, like I've had guests on that have done such amazing things with the underground music scene and art scene. And I give a lot of respect. I don't think that's where our patience level was. Right. Like, it wasn't, I don't think that we wanted to be at the ground level of building a scene, um, mm-hmm. which and, and mad props to people that do that. But um, I think it's so amazing that you were you were like, yeah, I guess pivot. This is where I'm going now. And so, um, I, I, yeah, I'm just so in awe of you. I think you still look amazing and you still have so much, so much vivacity to you, you know, even with all of these years of, of life. And, and I wonder a little bit if that is why you seem so vivacious is, I mean, do you feel like, you know, at 40, whatever years old that you really, <laughs> well, I was going to be really, you know, kind, but okay, that's true. You already gave your year, but um, do you, do you feel at this point that like you have, you have lived life to its fullest? Well, I'll tell you, I made a really smart choice when I was really young and I sold my soul really early and I got a really great deal on it. <laughs> That's so awesome. Oh my gosh. Well, Chris, I love, God, I love you so much. And, you know, we, now that we're so much more connecting so much more often, you know, Mm -hmm. actually would love to have you come back on the podcast, maybe in the fall, and we can tap into some deeper stories about being Uh, middle age and, you know, kind of the, 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 being 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 a black man in today's world, being a black gay man in today's world, and how that is because surely you were you being in the dance world and especially burlesque, you kind of were in what would be perceived as I want to use the word perceived as a safe place to be a black gay man. But I see your eyes because we're doing a video chat. Um, <laughs> you you have let me know that that's not really the insulated womb that we, we want to think it is. I mean, sometimes, but other times it is. It's like a an unexpected, perfectly executed turkey tap. Which anybody who doesn't know what that is, that's when your brother comes from behind. And you have your legs open and he goes under and he smacks and he just smacks the bottom of your balls. That's a turkey tap. <laughs> That's what it's like sometimes. <laughs> All right. Well, we've come to the point in the podcast now where we're going to do rapid fire questions with okay. rapid fire answers. All so right. try not to think too hard about your responses. But first and foremost, Chris, what's your favorite memory from childhood? Um. As uh, I, I I got the chicken pox really, um, really bad um, when I was in third grade and I couldn't go and it was close to Halloween and I couldn't go out. So my two best friends, I put on my costume and they took a picture and then they took um, they took the picture of me when they went trick or treating and got a bag of candy because I couldn't go out as one of my favorite as a child. I love that. That is, that's good friendship right there. And what's your favorite eighties band or musician? Uh, um, Oh, Lisa, Lisa and Colt Jim and Samantha Fox. 
Oh, man, did I love that music. That was some good stuff back in the day. And then what's your favorite um, movie from the 80s? Uh, the Goonies. Never Say Die. Exactly. And then um, you basically said why you went to college. It was to get the fuck out of Lincoln and, and, and mad respect to that. Um, so what I want to ask you then is, um, and I can't wait to hear your responses, if you could give some advice to any generation younger, older, even Gen Xers, what would that either to get through the bad times or just life advice in general, what would that be? Um, I would, (laughs) I would give it to the, to the new generation and I would just very calmly and very politely say, before you go on your cancel campaign, at least read the entire fucking post. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it pretty much says it. It's like, just read the whole entire post. You know, there's a thing called humor and sarcasm and context that are left out of, like, the whole can- like cancel culture altogether. It's like, nine times out of ten, if you... When some when like when that happens and somebody's getting canceled, if you go back and you just look at it, it's like okay, what's the relationship between these two people? What's the context of this? What's being left out? You know, and none of that is seen and none of that's talked about because it's just we're just hearing the one that's barking the loudest, and usually the one that's barking the loudest is the one that has the biggest agenda. You know, and they're, and a lot of times they're posing it in a way of like, oh, well, I'm doing this for all of us when really you're just being an asshole. Allah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for listening. And if you think this is worth listening to, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Be kind to each other, listen to each other, and let's stop being separated by our differences. I don't